Welcome to episode number 52, A Bark to Match Its Bite. This is the Rotated Views Podcast with Jimmy Lee and the crew, giving you life from various perspectives. Welcome to our level. We hope you enjoy the views. All right, you are now tuned in to the Rotated Views Podcast, episode number 52, A Bark to Match Its Bite. I am your host, Jimmy Lee Velez. I'm in the studio with Goose, Heck, Manny, and Gabe. We have a stacked house today, and we have special guest Brandon Hilkert with us. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so a bark to match its bite. In this episode, we have special guest, entrepreneur, speaker, and developer Brandon Hilkert. In this episode, we discuss startups, software development, and music. Brandon explains what kind of conversations parents should be having with their children concerning cyberbullying, sexting, depression, and suicidal thoughts. We receive tips on entrepreneurship, and we wrap the episode up with quotes from Sigmund Freud and Phil Libin. All right, so as usual, dictionary.com will provide us with a definition, and we chose the word protect, and uh, Brandon will go in later and explain a little bit of why maybe we chose that word, but uh, they define it as to defend or guard from attack, invasion, loss, annoyance, insult, etc., cover or shield from injury or danger. So, as mentioned, we have special guest Brandon Hilkert with us today, and for our story segment... We're going to have Brandon give us a little bit of background about who he is and uh, what he does. It's all yours, buddy. Cool. Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, you know, first, I'm a dad. Um, I have two little kids. Um, we live in Westchester outside of Philadelphia. been playing music for a long time. Um, got into tech, software development, not too long after college, and uh, kind of started going down that path, making designing apps, making apps, um, doing some stuff on the side, small projects here and there. And um, yeah, I think all those things together sort of took me on the trajectory that I'm on and led me to, um, you know, co-found a couple startups. And uh, the, this latest one, Bark, is, um, is something that's a little more special, I'd say, just because of the nature of uh, having kids and family and being around people with kids and seeing sort of the dangers of the stuff that, you know, everyone now knows is sort of the Internet growing up with it. It's a little different now for our kids in that they... They uh, will always know life with a cell phone, you know, mm-hmm. more or less a computer in their pocket yeah. and can find and do just about anything they want, you know, and, and growing up uh, for us, at least, you know, that, that it wasn't the case, you know. So, um, you know, I think for me, uh, for me personally, it, it's a mix of all those things and just trying to keep a healthy balance of all of it. Um, for a long time, I spent a lot of a lot of time, um, you know, either doing the software thing and putting some things on the side and, and it's sort of come full circle in that. You know, trying to keep that balance of everything makes me better, I think, at all the other things individually. Um, just because my head's, you know, has is cleared out, I can come back fresh the next day and have a better perspective. So, yeah, a little bit of tech, a little bit of music, uh, family, and um, that's pretty pretty good summary at this point. Yeah. So um, nice. let's take it back into the beginning, where, um, from what I understand, you are a musician. Um, is now is this something that you do or did professionally, or is just more of like a leisure thing? Um, I know you made like connections with several professionals, so I didn't know if it was something that you know you still do, or it was just something from your you know history. Yeah, unfortunately, not as much anymore. And um, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to sort that out just because you know I think it's one of those things I sort of put on the wayside, and and um, 
uh, not intentionally, but it was just sort of timing and, and, you know, life gets in the way and kids and, uh, the other people I play with have kids, you know, and so it just gets more challenging to get everybody together and sort of coordinate babysitters or, you know, (laughs) significant, (laughs) significant others taking care of kids or whatever. But it it all started back, you know, basically middle school, you know, I, I took up playing drums and, um, my cousin played drums and, and he was in bands and stuff. He was a handful of years older than I was. So, you know, I saw kind of them going through high school and playing shows and, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. So I got into playing drums and, um, went off to college, played in bands and everything. And, uh, realized that, you know, dragging drums around was kind of annoying. And, <laughs> you know, so like being the drummer, you know, everybody comes to your house, you know, leaves leaves all their crap at your house, you know, so they were like guitars and bass and amps and uh, everywhere growing up at my house, you know, so I would like kind of tinker with them. And so I got to college and was like, man, dragging drums around is not fun at all. And on top of that, you know, lived in apartments, you couldn't really like go nuts or anything without yeah. cops showing up, you know, soon yeah. after that. So I started playing bass in a band there and then uh, and then picked up more guitar towards the end of college. And so that was that was probably where it got a little more serious. Um, my last year of college, we played in a band called Rary Avis, put out a record, went on tour for a little bit. And then later, you know, after college, just kept going down that route and um, it played, played a bunch of shows, played a bunch of really cool shows. And it was never, you know, it was never my full time job. You know, uh, you probably heard a lot of people say the same thing, you know, pursuing music, you know, you just sort of get lucky and. If you can make money from it, that's awesome. We made enough money to not have to pay to do it. You know, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. we'd play shows that were would cover, you know, our costs more or less. Um, but at at that point, that was it was more just fun. So we we did get some cool opportunities to play with some big bands and have our music played on some commercials and that kind of thing. But you know, it was it was at this point just something that I'm, I look back on as as a good time and I'm proud of what we accomplished and the music we made. But yeah, I wish I. Um, I wish I had more of that now, you know, it's, it's tough with the kids, but I don't know. I, I think it sort of comes in waves, yeah. you know, and, and at some point I'll, I'll catch the next wave where everything sort of lines up to make it happen. And, uh, I'll look forward to it. Yeah. I think we had on a, um, we had a singer, Kim D. Uh, I think basically she said the same story where, uh, when she was younger, she was a singer. She got into this whole thing. She was, you know, having shows like Stevie B and all and like really blew up. And then she started a family. And kind of had to, you know, step back from the whole scene or whatever. But exactly what you're saying, it kind of came full circle because um, her one son got interested. So then she started getting back into it, you know, teaching uh, him. So I don't know. That might may or may not happen with you. But um, yeah, then then you have an excuse to go back into your uh, your old glory days, I guess. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, we've got my daughter in piano lessons, you know. So it's interesting to see her start that process, you know, yeah. and kind of start reading music and. I mean, she's really early on, like we've been doing this for now for six months or so. So it's, um, it's cool though, you know, to see her, to see her play it and kind of under, start to get it, you know, Yeah. I was, always, I would always play guitar around the house and everything, you know, and, and all the kids, you know, I have two kids and, you know, when, it, when we would sit around, we'd like sing a Christmas song or something and I'd make up songs about them and, uh, they were always infatuated with it, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just like, you yeah, know, watch yeah, yeah. it, yeah, exactly. um, so it's cool. So we'll, we'll continue down that path, you know, exposing them to music and just having instruments around so they can play, you know, and if they if they like it, cool. Uh, if they rather go play soccer, that's cool, too. I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Brandon, can I ask a question here? Um, obviously, you enjoyed playing music. Um, what 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 experiences do you, did were kind of life lessons throughout those years? I mean, obviously, you're doing it because you loved it as far as playing music and going on tour. Um, but what experiences did you take? 
you know, with you, life lessons that you kind of take along with you that you can apply in everyday life now. Because being a musician, I mean, it's it's definitely a different lifestyle, obviously. Yeah, it's interesting because the type of people that are in music and make it to the point where they're playing shows and everything aren't necessarily the people you would imagine starting businesses necessarily right. or, um, you know, CEOs of companies. But it turns out that <laughs> there's a lot of the same requirements when it turns into more or less a small business. You know, when you're going out to play shows and you're getting handed money or you're trying to cover the door of some club, right? And a lot of places there's some contingencies put on shows, you know, oh. that are bigger, right? Like whether it's sales of tickets or, you know, f- uh, a portion of the door costs, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. You know, you're taking in money ultimately to pay out for whatever, whether it's merchandise. At the, you know, at the time we press CDs, I don't know, I could, do people even do that? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, wow. You know, and then we had to had some costs to travel, right? So if it was right. a couple hours away, we'd have gas or whatever. And um, you know, in, that, in the band after college, we bought a van and and all that. You know, so like, I would be naive to say, you know, we just went out and played some music and that was fine. You know, but er, real fast, it was like we bought this van and uh oh. Like, does anybody have money for gas? You know, <laughs> it's a pretty strong reality check. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, it it turns for good or bad, it turns into business, and you get a pretty healthy dose of you know this may or may not be why you did it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so you have to decide, I think, whether whether it satisfies that passion. Um, and if continuing on down that path is worth it, I I, I had a similar experience. Um, I I uh, I guess it was about the time when you know our band started getting more serious. I also sort of fell into recording music at the same time. So I got real into you know I had a bunch of gear and you know all this stuff, and I, I was recording bands and um, artists, and and it was awesome. Like it, I was I was seeing all this cool music and getting recorded. I mean, you don't make tons of money, but like it was awesome. I mean, I I, I was like, wow, I, I could get paid for this. So I thought. At some, you know, at some point, it was sort of like that fork in the road where I was starting to make some, get some traction on the on the tech side and starting to see sort of like what my future could look like down that path. And then it was like, well, I've got this recording thing which I love. I would spend every waking moment and every dime I had investing in gear or um, something to help the recording bit. So I, you know, I had the opportunity to either go to graduate school for engineering or go record in a recording studio. Um, of someone I really looked up to at the time. And and I took that opportunity. So I packed up my car and drove across the country to Kansas and worked in the recording studio. And it was probably a month or two in that it occurred to me that, and I have a very vivid moment of this. We were recording some bands and there was there was two studios there, one a smaller one that did a lot of like high school demo type stuff. And then a bigger one that you know was like all the signed artists would be in there. And I was helping out in the bigger studio and a guy I had you know come to be friends with it was a middle-aged dude, had two young kids, and for probably like three or four nights in a row, I saw him make a call to his wife around 8 p.m. to say, hey, I'm not going to be home tonight because, you know, whatever, this is going on. Day kind of dragged on and we could didn't get done what we wanted. And it occurred to me that that was just normal life at that point, right? Like that mm-hmm. was that was the majority of the days he spent in the studio that he wouldn't get to go home and see his kids. And so I got to sort of I got to see what a future would look like doing that full time for the rest of my life. And, and couple that with, um, recording a bunch of high school bands that I wasn't really into. Oh gosh. It was, you know, and and like their high school, right? Like in my high school, like the dude who recorded me was probably like, Oh my God, here we go. But, um, (laughs) you you know, it it turned into a job, 
right? Like yeah. this, it started as a passion, turned into a job. And I had not only that, but I was in the middle of the country and like, you know, with recording real estate, you know, anything where you develop, you know, a, basically a, a Rolodex, you know, if you leave, you, you can't take that with you in most cases, unless they're huge bands and you're working at a huge studio. So, you know, you would sort of beat down the door of these younger bands. They'd come in, you'd uh, pay the studio and then you would charge them to make this demo and that's how you'd make your living. And so if you go to some other new place, nobody knows you, right? Unless you have the luck of some recording some huge band by chance, but that didn't happen. So it was like, do I want to do this? Right? Like, was was this worth it? Like I could go back to wherever I think I want to be and, and start over and just do the grind for 15, 20 years. Hope I hit one good band, you know, that like has some paid stuff and like, you know, make some points off that. But I'd also never see my family at night because, you know, 20 out of 30 days in the month, you know, we'd spent till four or five in the morning in the studio because that's the hours of musicians. <laughs> so yeah, I had, had to make the hard decision that I realized that that was, that was my passion. It was, it was ruining the passion for me. And so I bailed. Hmm. Um, so how, go- how old were you at that point when you had that, I, guess, I don't know if it's an epiphany, but you had that thought where you're like, holy smokes is I don't want this lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I was probably 23. Three, maybe. Oh wow! wow. So what it's makes early. me like yeah, happy for you? I guess it was like at least you found that out at twenty-three and not you know forty-three. <laughs> and yeah, you're going through it and you're like, you know, your wife left you, your kids hate you, and you're at that point and it's too late. Yeah. Um, to turn everything back around, that was very you know observant, I guess, on your end to see someone else kind of go through it. And maybe that was for him. Obviously, that was his thing. But it, you, you realize then it, that wasn't going to be for you. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. You know, I I mean, certainly at that age, it, I wasn't like, I want to have a family one day. And as a result, I see what this is going to be like, and this is not going to work. If, mm-hmm. if I had been, you know, just head over heels, the passion wasn't ruined, I would have been there still, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, all those things combined, though. I mean, certainly... I knew that I probably wanted to have kids one day, right? But had no one at the time. Uh, it wasn't something a year or two out or anything. But, you know, it, it, that's one of those th- that it's more or less a trade, right? So like a- any trade you get into, you you dive into and, you know, your experience is it, right? Like I had a, th- this is all sort of coupled with the fact that like I went to school for mechanical engineering and um I did really well in school, but it was sort of towards the end where I realized that I'm not sure if I wanted to do this. And I had this like, (laughs) I had this struggle with like, do I continue? Like coming out of school at a big engineering school is like not bad. And I could certainly do a lot of other things. It makes me qualified to do a bunch of stuff, but I didn't want to do that. And so it was sort of like a little too late to be like, well, I'll go start some other stuff. Like I didn't know any other <laughs> that I wanted to do any more than what I was doing, but I, yeah. I, but I did know that I didn't see a future doing that every day. And so, yeah, I pushed on. And, um, when I, when I stumbled in attack, um, it was the result of, of me. So I, I took a job doing mechanical engineering out of school as like HVAC design for commercial spaces. So I was doing that for like nine months and, um, it was, it was bad. It was, it was not like this for some people. It's not for me. I, I was like, it was a little too stagnant. So I was sitting there all the time. I was designing stuff, but like my days were just so predictable. And like, it was like groundhog day. Oh Oh, man. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like being up, up and around doing stuff. Days are different. You know, each day is different. You never sort of really know what you're going to get into, um, at the start of the day. And, um, for me, that was just, it was, it was like, it was misery. And so to the dismay of my parents, I, 
I bailed uh, without <laughs> anything else. I was like, I'll go bartend or something. Like I, <laughs> like all good it decisions. Like a practical thing to do. But um, I got this opportunity. It was coming up on a summer, and it, um, I got this opportunity to work at a school district, a local school district, um, doing. They would do construction on their school buildings, and then they would have to like move out all the computers and the labs and everything, and then reinstall them you know, at, at a different school or wherever the school moved to or whatever. And so I, I did that for, you know, the summer and it just turned out that I was like, I got a little taste of, you know, tech and networking and, um, software, but not less software at the time. But, um, and I was like, Oh, this could be pretty cool. You know, like you're kind of running around, like I was carrying a bunch of stuff, like who cares? Like whatever, I'm, I'm young. I don't really need to support anyone. And so I stayed on for the school year. They were like, Oh, you seem to be like, you could do this and you want to stick around. And so it was like a support position for a high school and um, a middle school. So you'd like go back and forth each day and basically support teachers and make sure the computers worked and they could do what they needed to do on them. And, you know, one year led to two and then did the same thing. I was like, man, this is, this is okay. I was getting, I was getting better at it. You know, I was, I was really kind of digging in and getting to the bottom of all, all of it. And that's when all this studio stuff came up and, you know, I was doing all that on the side and it was like, I could see the tech going, I could stay with it. Right. And, and, and be fine. Um, or I could like sniff out this, you know, passion that I had of recording. And so that's when I, that's when I headed out and, um, bailed on the tech and went to record and, uh, but quickly realized that wasn't the long-term thing. So fortunately they had me back. Um, so I came back and had my same job more or less, but, um, what it did do is it was kind of make me laser focused on, on that path. And so, um, I didn't stay there too much longer just because it, it was not, um, uh, the path forward for me staying there wasn't the path forward that I wanted. Yeah. I wanted to just kind of move on and, and kind of get to that next step of whatever tech, you know, had in store for me. So yeah, so that, that was probably 2006 maybe. Um, and really just dug in and, and that was the start of, you know, my strong involvement in tech and going forward there. So you're a software developer. How, how, when you went from tech, and I know you said you were tinkering around with, you know, making apps and stuff. I actually do remember, Gabe, do you, do you remember when they had like build an app thing or whatever? Yeah, I mean, they, they might still have it. No, that was shut down. Like, okay. The thing we messed around with like years ago. Yeah. yeah it was like a weird thing where it was like almost like puzzle pieces of, but like it was, it was code. Yeah. And you yeah, kind of fit together and kind of create like a, almost like a makeshift. You're anybody could almost make create like a makeshift app. So we're like in this like fascinating era of like time with, you know, technology and stuff like that. And I just think I always find it funny that we grew up without the internet, and then like our kids yeah, have exactly. no idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think of like the telephone when Alexander Graham Bell must have introduced this, sure. and like, yeah. he's like, "Well, I grew up without a telephone." You know right. what I mean? Um, and we're like, "Here we go, history repeats itself." So, so you did you get into that kind of stuff, or when you say tech, what do you mean for the non-tech people here in the room? Yeah, so I think um, uh, if you're involved in technology, it usually is one of two paths. One is like the networking in terms of networking being like, um, plug this wire in this and then like this computer works and gets to the internet and, you know, it involves <laughs> routers and switches and some other like technical equipment. And you can either kind of like a basic support position, which is what I had sort of exposed me to that, right? Because computers weren't working or talking to other computers and sort of led you down this path of like, well, this is plugged into here and it goes back into this switch closet, right? Which has a bunch of equipment in it. How does that all connect together and how does it work? Um, and so that that's kind of the network engineer path, you know, more of the hardware side um, kind of starts at support and, and you get deeper and deeper where you could be architecting data centers or, um, you know, for like 
kind of like tier one provider, you know, internet services. And then there's that other path, which is software development. So there's like, you know, two kind of parallel paths. Generally, if you go to school for the software piece, it's usually computer science. If you go to school for the, you know, more networking piece, well, I should say there's there's another one, which like I don't have much exposure to, which is just hardware, right? Which would be like designing silicon, you know, like CPUs or um, actual like hardware devices. Right? Yeah. That's like more um, firmware type stuff. But that would be like the electrical engineering side and or slash kind of computer engineering side. So so for more practical purposes, it's like networking or software development. And it's weird because early on during the networking piece, I kind of, I, you know, I was aware of software development and um, I sort of had this generalization that, uh, you know, if you can imagine somebody that develops software, there's like, you know, some person that kind of sits there all day and like does nothing, looks at code and like can barely hold a conversation with someone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like all these really bad, you know, generalizations about it. Um, but I got a, a little a little exposed to it just because in networking you sort of like have to script computers to do things on their own and and so you might have little snippets of stuff and and at the core of it it's all you know some kind of programming language and just so happens in software development you do that eight hours a day instead of you know maybe 30 minutes at a time and i always said to myself man there's no way i could like stare at code for eight hours a day and that went on for a long time and, and that was true um until i so I, I kind of went through that path and was working for companies and getting more and more experience on the networking side. And I came to a company that was small and we developed some software for um, Rite Aid. So I don't know if you've been at like the Rite Aid pharmacy, whatever, they have that like rebate program card, whatever it's called. Yeah. Rebates. I don't know if they still have it. But um, so the company that I worked for managed all that for them. So they did the website, you know, where you get rebates and you can type in your receipt and like, it gets credited back to your card or whatever. Yeah. Um, Rite Aid didn't do that on their own. So, you know, we had people that were doing, you know, managing that site and developing all the software there. You know, for, for what, whatever reason, there was just an opportunity to, like, kind of get into that side more. And so I, I was like, okay, I'll, you know, give it a shot, like, here and there. You know, it wasn't just going to be, like, full-time all of a sudden. And it was okay. You know, I, I, was, I was reminded of, you know, my thoughts about doing this eight hours a day. I was like, ah, I don't, I don't, it's all right. It's cool to be able to, like, think about something or, or kind of like have this idea of a feature specked out and, and, and to be able to like actually implement it and see it work. Right. The web for me was like that feedback loop was so fast that it was like, it was, so, it was awesome. And it, it actually is sort of weird because it goes back, I think to like the reason I was attracted to mechanical engineering, which was um, the like tactile, like make things um, work or fit together or like, um, do things and, and that feedback cycle. So when I was younger, I like would take apart our vacuum and stuff at home. My mom used to get so pissed off, but I'd, <laughs> I'd always get back together. But it was like that kind of like curiosity, you know, that ended me up focusing on mechanical. And um, I I liked chemistry in high school and and thought about doing chemical engineering, um, but the mechanical piece it was just so much more enticing because you build like race cars and like um, turn a like a Tahoe into an electric car, like a hydrogen fuel cell. And those types of projects were like, wow, you know, at the end of it, you see this car, you can drive it. Like it's a, it's a thing, right? Whereas chemical, it's like this thing mixes together and like, boom. And then like, you have this other chemical and you're like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, so software was like that, you know, developing for the web, you, you like can write some stuff, you hit like refresh more or less on the browser. And like, you have a thing that yeah, like, yeah, yeah works right and it does all, all this stuff and it just turns out that at the time you know this was sort of the start of web 
like web as we know it, you know, web dynamic web applications to do, you know, all kinds of stuff. Mm. And so I, I kind of like played along and went down that path and was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. And then I just so happened to stumble on, um, stumble on a programming language that just blew my mind. Like it, it was so much in a way that like, it just, it like spoke to me everything about it was like, this is how my mind works. Yeah. Every how how it's read, how it's written. Um, it just from every other language I'd seen, it was like, oh wow, this is. I. It was the first time I thought I wouldn't mind doing this eight hours a day, and um, on top of that, it was it was kind of a, a language that was used in startups and small companies because there was a high level of productivity. Like you didn't oh. the amount of code you had to write to do something was much lower than many of the other languages that were out there, and so that was really exciting for me because that was like kind of the first little glimpse as into startups and, um, just, uh, you know, entrepreneurial life. Like, Oh, you can make this thing on the side and like it does stuff and maybe someone would pay you for it. It was, it was mind blowing to me because I'd traditionally worked on kind of medium sized companies, but never, you know, never like, why could I be a business owner? Like I, I didn't have that, you know, I didn't, I didn't even go to school for this stuff. And, and so the, the, the software piece, you know, being that it's, like there was another part of me that had a hard time getting over the fact that I didn't go to school for it. Mm. And it was a struggle feeling qualified. Mm. And as it turns out now, when I look back on it, I think it was a legitimate worry at the time, just because, you know, if somebody goes to school for four years at a really top notch school comes out with a computer science degree, like all signs point to them being much better at computer science than you are (laughs) at that level. Right. But it turns out that like degrees don't really mean that much. And um, in most cases, the stuff you learn is hardly practical in the real world. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I found that to be true for mechanical engineering. And it turns out that from what I gather, that's also true for computer science. So, so yeah, go ahead. Brandon, I wanted to ask you a question. You, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit and you said, uh, you know, I could see myself doing this for eight hours. Now, did that language that spoke to you, did that turn into a passion or is that something that you could just deal with? Because it sounds like you're passionate about it, but you kind of talked about it like, yeah, I can do it for eight hours. I think the, I think I, I dealt with it knowing that the result of it was something that would, I could bring something to life. Right. And so it was the path of the least resistance, mm-hmm. um, knowing that I could create these things and that was the easiest way to do it. And a really productive way to do it. You know, mm-hmm. in the past, I guess, from what I had seen in other languages and being around other software developers and just being, you know, working in those jobs, um, you know, a simple thing like um, adding a contact form or, you know, imagine a, a pretty simple example um, might take, you know, a day or, or something, right, traditionally. And, you know, for this language to come out and kind of the tools around it to be able to knock that out in 15, 20 minutes. Um, and have it live. That that was another piece of it. Um, was like, wow, you know, like, okay, so what do I do with the rest? You know, the, the seven and a half hours that are left for this day. Like, I'm actually <laughs> making it and just killing it, you know. And, and before you know it, you have like full blown products, more or less, mm. um, in a short period of time. And so that I think it had a huge effect on. When I think about it now, it had a huge. The the language itself had a huge effect on the industry. Um, it was the language is Ruby. Um, and, uh, there's a web framework called Ruby on rails. And so it's predominantly used in startups because that was, it it was, it was really highly productive an environment to be in. So you didn't need, you know, a team of 20 to like push out this website. 
um, would have traditionally been, you know, a year or two, all of a sudden turned into, you know, you could get sort of like an MVP out there in a month, maybe even shorter, depending wow. on what it was, hmm. you know, and, and you had like a clear vision of what you were making. And I think that was really important. And um, the language has been growing ever since. And it's interesting now because um, <laughs> uh, like five, six years ago, you know, it was kind of the sexy new kid on the block and uh, everybody kind of wanted to learn it. And um, it was like, it was the automatic language you would you would pick up if you were going to make a website. And now it's gotten to the point where it's kind of like not sexy anymore. Um, and it's so widely used that I don't worry about the skills um, not being useful anymore. But you see big companies, you know, um, looking for Ruby on Rails developers. And you know that sort of it's hit the it's hit the big time. And now all of a sudden, yeah, the yeah, big yeah. companies are like, eh, I don't know anymore, you know, because it's like. <laughs> It's not so cool, right? right. Um, but that's sort of when you, I think you know that, you know, you sort of, you're, you've peaked, right? Like if you're getting the attention of, you know, the Comcast and the NBCs of the world, and they're hiring um, developers using those tools. It's like, yeah, you really could go anywhere and work. And, and at that point, the it's awesome because um, the demand is much higher than the supply and you sort of rule your own world at that point, mm -hmm. you know? And so... Um, you see trends like uh, remote working, right? Like now we're working at home being really popular among these developers just because there's not enough of them. And companies have realized that if they're going to hire outside of their own city or location, um, they need to allow remote working and, and be open to it and realize that like the world is going to come crashing down and, and some dude's not going to, you know, uh, disappear and take all their money and they're actually going to make something. So um, it's been it's caused some interesting trends, but I think all are productive for like um, tech and work forces and society, you know, like the, the amount of tools and apps you can see built fast are amazing. So uh, going along with this, you know, the topic of uh, the, the language Ruby, you're also an author of build a Ruby gem. Explain what a Ruby gem is. I obviously, you, you know, you explained that it's a, a specific language and why, did you decide to write a book about it? Because a lot of times people, I feel like people are like, I have the secret knowledge. I'm going to keep it to mm -hmm. myself. What would make you, you know, you know, write a book about it and essentially teach people how to, you know, build a gem? Yeah, I think, um, well, so a gem, uh, Ruby, you know, is a programming language. And if you want to do things like um, on a website, you know, have a login form, right, with an email and a password or something like that. Yeah. Um, rather than write that, from scratch every time, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's a common pattern at this point, username, password, right? And then um, you click forgot password and you go through this flow and mm -hmm. um, you want to talk to a database, right? To st store some stuff. And those patterns in other languages, you sort of, and a lot of times you sort of wrote from scratch and, and you know, companies had their sort of proprietary ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. Gems were uh, basically packaged up pieces of code of common idioms, you know, so if you wanted a login form, you would add um, a gem that, you know, did authentication, right? That's kind of the, the higher level, um, allow people to get in based on their username and give them some stuff that's specific to them, right? Have a profile, have an account, add a credit card, do whatever, order, order some clothes, you know, all that together. So gems were individual pieces that were packaged up in a way that you said, I want to build a you know, a site like an e-commerce site. And so you might find a gem to do login. You might find a gem to do a shopping cart. You might find a gem that does inventory. 
you know, underneath that, all of them talk to the database. You find a gem to talk to the particular database that you want to use. And so they're just little, um, little like suitcases of code, basically, that you can like add in all different project projects, and they'll all work the same. And so you know that like if you go from one project to another, and they all use the same one, uh, you know it'll work similarly uh, as it did to the last one. And so it was a way to cut down some time, as you can imagine. So if you yeah. can think of like finding all the pieces that involved in the, uh, you know, that would take to build this new site that you have, and you've used a lot of them before, you can put that site up really quickly using existing gems. And there's Ruby, really the language itself is open source, which means um, it's free to use, you know, whereas um, in sort of the polar opposite was a lot of those kind of Microsoft-based languages. And I came from that Microsoft background. If you were sort of like on the network side, you inevitably were using Microsoft um, tools and technology and Microsoft was traditionally closed source, which meant that you know he had to pay a lot of money to put up a server and to install um, their tools on it. And so Ruby is an open source language, which meant they they developed in the open and it was free to use. And um, it was really like wildly different from what most big companies were used to. And and what you get from that being open is that people are very critical of it, right? And so one of the things was Microsoft said, well, we're not going to let anybody see the source code of, of the things we write because they'll they'll immediately know how to attack it right and the open source side said well if we put all of our source code out there for free for everybody to see smart people will come along and say oh there's a hole here let me patch it up and you'll get the best of the best you know contributing and as a result you'll have a stronger product and language um, in the end and so since then you know quite a quite a few other languages have come out to be open source and, and many of them are being developed now in the opens. And it's a really cool thing to see, but it means that, you know, the average guy or girl um, in their basement on the side can make these websites and apps um, for more or less free, you know, and, and put up something and have an opportunity to be an entrepreneur um, if they find something that other people want. And so the book came up it came about, I was working on some stuff and, and things were at the time, I, I guess I wasn't particularly interested in what I was doing, but you know, it was a good job and, and it was fine. And so I had some time on the side and um, given that I was using Ruby and um, oh, these open source tools, you know, I felt sort of an obligation to give back to the community. And I was starting to get more comfortable feeling like I knew what I was doing and I was confident in it. Um, cause you know, there's always the bit where you're learning something. You're like, I'm, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I would never try to tell somebody else that I knew, you know, especially right. I, I didn't go to school for it. So like, you know, everybody knows more than me and it's this imposter syndrome that sort of like creeps up. And I think it happens a lot in tech. Um, even people that I, I'm like, wow, man, these are like the who's who in tech. You know, I, I hear them talk about it as well. So it's interesting. I don't know. It's probably everywhere, but at the time, you know, I was starting to feel comfortable and, and I was like, I think this is my opportunity to give back to the community. So I started contributing back to projects that I use. They were open source. And so, you know, basically I was looking for ways to learn, which is, I think it turns out to be a common pattern in my life, just about learning in general. And I think a lot of like the things that I've done have sort of stemmed from that both interest and need for myself to just like kind of keep going forward in whatever it is. And so I was, I was feeling comfortable and I was starting to give back to the community and, and it and it turns out that like, you know, if you want to give back, you end up contributing back to these gems. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I, I need to know how a gem works, right? So I like started going down that path. I was like, whoa, man, this is a lot more complex than I uh, expected, you know? And so being sort of like the detail-oriented person, I was like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm not, you know, and until I figure this out, like I'm going to focus on it 100%. <laughs> 
So I basically like, you know, top to bottom, you know, what is a gem? How is it structured? How do you make one? How do you contribute to one? And I, I covered all that and started getting, kind of contributing to other projects. And yeah, I think it, it, it was, it was one of those things where, um, some people in sort of the community that I was, I was in had started making some info products, um, courses or books or other things. And I was like, well, I can, I can do one of these. And I was, I just remembered back to when I first started contributing to it, all the struggles I had with how to, how to start and how to create a gem and how to like modify an existing one. And I figured other people would have the same struggles. And so I started a blog, um, on my site at brandonhilker.com and, and wrote a couple articles, a handful of articles about that same kind of struggle and curiosity. And that one contributing back to open source struck a nerve with people. And I was a little surprised, but in a way I wasn't because I remember back thinking to my experience and how frustrated I was not having a bunch of um, clear tools and explanations around how these things worked. And so I figured, well, if I, if people found this article interesting and I obviously had this problem, there's gotta be other people. And so, you know, I just started out basically like um, writing and giving it away for free. Um, it, it started off as sort of an email course, which um, was like a five lesson thing. You know, basically was, I used MailChimp and just like wrote, I got up at like 5 a.m. for two weeks, I think, and just wrote, you know, until uh, my kids got up. And um, at the end of those two weeks, I had uh, what amount to the first five chapters of the book now. But I started I created an email, cor- email course and said, you know, here's kind of a quick start to finish of you know, the process of building one. And so I, you know, you'd sign up for this list, and um, I would email a lesson every other day or something like that. And so I got through those first five lessons, and a lot more people signed up than I expected. And I was like, wow, I guess I got to continue this. And so I sort of like asked around, and um, people seemed to be interested in sort of a book format. Um, and at the time, people that were making info products were doing, you know, kind of like a vi- like a higher tier video package as well. And so that's what I did. I sort of put a book together, um, continued down that path, put a book together, and then did some video screencasts. And I think in total it took um, three months or so, like starting back to that when I originally made the course. And I released it, and and it went great. I like I really had no expectations, you know, like a book. Like for someone who came out of college in like a very technical field, and like like I struggled with English and feeling comfortable like in English class in college, like writing papers and like that was really like it was pure misery to me. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was a struggle for me to get my thoughts down clearly and like explain them to other people. And so this is actually like really therapeutic in a way that when I look back on it now, the result of that has really, I've really benefited from just in like everyday life, even at work and, and outside of work, being able to write clearly um, and clearly explain your thoughts and, and maybe your ideas, you know, it was really, um, I think it's underrated you know, for, yeah. for anyone, no matter what field you're in. But anyway, you know, launched the book and, and that was cool. And it's still up there for sale. And, you know, it, it, it's very, the sales are very clearly proportional to the amount of time I spend marketing. Right. <laughs> the shop, right. <laughs> so, uh, but it's good. I mean, like the first, um, so yeah, I didn't have any expectations cause I just didn't, I, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, like it was just like, I, I don't know, I'm just trying this. And 
the first day I remember, uh, we put it up for sale. I took off for work because I was like, I, I don't know what to expect, but I like, felt like I had their computer. Like, even though it was like on a platform where you just like buy and it just like sends you all the ebooks and everything, I was like, needed to be like there. I'm like, tell my wife, I'm like, I'm gonna, like, I need to respond to people. Like, I'm gonna get a bunch of emails. And so I put it up for sale. Like, I think I said, um, it was like midnight that night. So I, I stayed up. It was like 12.05. I made sure you could buy it. Like I tried to buy it and it worked. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went to bed and I woke up really early and um, sat there, kept refreshing the page. And I was like, wow, people are buying it. That's cool. So, you know, the first like handful were like friends and everything. So I'm like, okay, yeah, we'll get this out. Of <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, throughout the morning, like refreshing, got a handful of emails, like responded. People were like, uh, is this included? Is that included? I responded and, um, Throughout the day, I kept doing it, just going up and up and up. I'm like, man, this is like, I didn't expect this many people to buy it. So, like, I told my wife, I was like, I guess we got to go celebrate, you know, because like, this is, <laughs> this is pretty cool. Like, you can actually make money just sitting down. I'm like, off from work, you know, I'm sitting on the couch, more or less. I'm like, it was like buying, buying, buying. So, anyway, the um, that day uh, ended up at a little over $10,000 of sales wow. Uh, wow. from this, cool. you know, more or less like, um, <clears throat> little curiosity project to put together some information that I thought other people could use as well. So it was, it was really mind blowing. You know, I mean, uh, I didn't expect that. I don't know what I expected. Um, I think, I think if I had, I had made like a grand or two, I would have been like, I'd been like, man, this is awesome. Yeah. Right. Like, um, it was like two more grand that I had the other day before. And, right. um, I probably would have done something along those lines anyway, maybe just not for other people and just for myself. So, you know, to see that amount to money was, was pretty awesome. And then, you know, continue forward, like the, it was for sale and, um, still is. Um, but then, you know, when you're like out, like on a Saturday, I'm out with my kids or something and my phone, you know, I look at my phone, it's like sale of the book. And I'm like, Whoa, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. when you, when you separate your like means of generating revenue from work, it's a very bizarre experience, you know, like when you, when your hours don't equate to sales, but like this other like machine you've built in the background is like creating sales for you. Um, it's a pretty cool feeling. I mean, I could see how like, you know, authors and, um, somebody who would just, you know, if you had a bunch of these, right, like you could make a living potentially on, um, a handful of these just kind of coming from all angles or whatever. So yeah, that was my experience writing the book. It was pretty cool. That's a fascinating awesome. story. I like how, you know, the, the progression of how everything kind of mapped out. Um, and then even fast forwarding and leading, like you said, the book and everything's still for sale. Everything's still going. That's how I yeah. found, I was just like, you know, like, you know, doing some research and then I found the book. I'm like, oh, wow, check this out. I was very curious because I saw like the little landing page and put your information on here. It was pretty cool. And I appreciated yeah. the fact that it was like uh, mobile friendly. That's like my first thing I look for. I'm like, I can't yeah. stand scrolling on my phone is the most obnoxious thing. Yeah. Like, dude, how, how yeah. long have phones been out? How long have websites been out? We should at least get it down to, you know, you figuring out it should be mobile friendly. But I, I do appreciate that. Where can people actually get that? It's just yeah, your so website. Yeah, just brandonhilker.com, and there's a link on the nav that says books, and it'll take you there. All right, perfect. So in transition, moving moving right along here, you um, you are the CTO of Bark.us. Explain to us, you know, what Bark is, um, and and how how your involvement and how you got you know involved. Yeah, so Bark's a tool for parents to help monitor their kids' activity online to help keep them safe. And so this stems from, you know, anything from depression, suicide to cyberbullying to uh, grooming. There's some pretty gnarly stuff on the Internet. And uh, yeah, 
you know, with uh, the social networks that are popping up all the time, there's unfortunately a lot of bad players that prey on children, um, sadly. And um, I think a lot, a lot more than people think or know. Yeah. And so um, being sort of the first generation that um, is raising kids that are basically given a device, you know, at a very young age um, and are more or less left to figure it out on them on their own. You know, it, it, we figured that. So there are tools out there that um, that have done this traditionally. And their their approach is to basically say, um, give uh, you know, the tool would go out and get all this stuff the kid posts and sends it to the parent. And the parent reads all this stuff like LMAO and like, I'm going to break up with Johnny and blah, blah, blah. Like it's it's not necessarily things that the parent needs to be concerned with. And it takes a lot of their time. Yeah. And um, these tools weren't very technologically interesting, although that's not all that, that matters, but it didn't really make use of great tech to make the parent's life better. And so if you're you know, thinking of a perfect world, like what, what does the perfect tool do to keep kids safe online? We're in a time now where there's a lot of talk about machine learning and, and um, artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of tools in that arena that are helping create um, algorithms to detect things. Um, that thing could be anything from patterns of words to speech, you know, as you see in like Amazon's tools with Alexa and um, decoding, you know, parts of speech, um, really complex stuff or self-driving cars, right? Like it's all the same, the same ideas are going behind uh, predicting these types of things. So you know, our approach was, was basically like, can we use this technology to um, detect issues, issues being, you know, anything from cyberbullying to depression and then um, notify the parent of just those issues. And so it does two interesting things. It, one is obviously the, the reason you do it is to keep the kids safe. But the second is that it, it, it allows the child some privacy, which they didn't have with other tools. And so it, it means that like their parents aren't all up in their business. They can actually go on with normal life. But if like some creepy dude from wherever, you know, comes knocking on the door saying, meet me at the park at three, hmm. the parent knows about it. But they can go on, you know, planning their you know, whatever they're going to do on Friday night on their own and not get notified. So the parents get, you know, one or two notifications a day versus like a thousand or 2000. I mean, you've probably seen some kids text. I mean, it's just wild how much stuff they can produce. Yeah. Um, so bark, you know, bark was made to basically, um, be a tool for parents to be notified of issues in their kids' lives and let the kids, you know, experience the internet and the power of the internet without, um, while hopefully also learning lessons and, and being safe while doing it. And very uh, efficient for the parent. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everybody's busy. You know, they don't want to be spending time reading 500 text messages between their best friends. It's, I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's unnecessary. So <laughs> let me read um, some feedback you guys received uh, fr from Bark. So this one's from Josh from Atlanta. He says, my wife and I love Bark. We've had some tough but productive conversations uh, with our 13-year-old son. It's proving to be extremely valuable. And another one from Ray, uh, Ray F. from Charlotte, North Carolina, says, I wanted to say thank you. Bark is really providing me some peace of mind as a parent, and my kids appreciate the extra privacy I'm giving them. Um, and there's a ton on Bark's website. I just wanted to grab a few just to kind of get you maybe your feedback or your 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 opinion on what does that mean to you guys because you set out to do something and here you are getting real life parents feedback and what does that mean to you guys that that's like the golden ticket yeah. you know i 
you set out to do something, you do it. Um, consumer products are funny because, um, you know, everybody's different. And, and oftentimes consumers are pretty finicky, especially when it comes to, I don't want to say cheap because that sort of like brings some assumptions, but like low cost, you know, yeah. I would say that like they sort of want the world. It's it's ironic, but like, you know, if, if you charge, you know, let's say $100 for a product, you actually have like a lighter support load than you did on a $9 product. <laughs> and um, I don't know why that is. I, I think the age of like mobile apps at 99 cents have taught people to like sort of expect that they deserve everything um, for basically nothing. But, you know, these are the types of people that um, we set out to help and we're helping. And so it's, it's gratifying to see that we've made that connection there. Um, but there's plenty of others that were, were sort of like missing in one area or another. And covering all of them is really challenging. And that's, you know, that, that's a challenge that we have. But one of the other, I would say, like, kind of strong philosophies that we have is that there should be open communication between uh, the parent and the child. And that's polarizing in some sense, because a lot of parents just want to say, you know, you're living under my roof, I bought that phone, I have your passwords, uh, you know, sorry. Um, but a lot of parents, you know, our goal is to allow the child more privacy, but also have an open line of communication so that they can be safe. And, you know, because, um, with bark, the parents are going to find out. Right. And so like one of the things that we do when we present an issue to a parent is to offer them recommendations on how to deal with it. Mm. So if, um, they were experiencing some grooming, you know, we might have the, we might have some recommendations. So we have a, a board of, um, a handful of child psychologists that have helped us um, develop some recommended actions to deal with these types of issues. And some of them are pretty heavy. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that along with this type of feedback, we've had, I would say, more than 10 situations uh, in recent months that um, parents have written to us to say, I think you saved our kid's life because wow. they were suicidal and we detected suicidal messages um, to friends or you know, emails or Facebook posts or whatever. Um, and they're in counseling now or they're in a hospital uh, getting wow. the help that they need. And that's, that's, that's pretty crazy. You know, like if you can affect a family like that. So I'm really proud of that. But uh, at the same time, you know, making sure we attempt to provide that level of value to everyone is, is hard. You know, but if I could imagine, like, if this is just ends tomorrow, um, I'd be pretty stoked about the impact we made, even if it was to just, you know, 20 families. I know, I know it's bigger than that right now, but I, um, that alone, I think is enough, you know, to save a kid's life is amazing. Yeah. Um, so you have a, a board of a child psychologist and, and you're getting this feedback. Was there any feedback that you just received from a customer that made you guys tweak the uh, bark or at, at, to any you know the application at, to any extent where you're like you know what that's a good idea maybe we should include or incorporate what they're suggesting yeah absolutely i think it the two that come to mind sort of come from two different angles one is like exactly what you said which is like you know i want i want it to do this but it doesn't and yeah. that, that was the result of just being out of the gates pretty fast we had to get something together and as a parent i think one way and another parent thinks a different way mm -hmm. and i didn't think maybe how they wanted to use it and then the other is the uh, kind of bias I have towards technology and using technology and assuming that other parents have the same, um, you know, where the likelihood is that more parents are less tech savvy uh, in general than they are, right? So we made a product that probably on the outside spoke um, 
spoke and looked very techy and intimidated parents and caused them some troubles just getting connected. You know, it's not um it's not a trivial process to like sign your kid up and connect all their social media accounts, right? Because there's like a bunch and certain ones you got to connect in different ways, um, whether it's like iOS or Android and Facebook and Twitter and you know all, all the apps out there. Like they all connect different in a different way, and so guiding them through that process um, has proved to be probably our hardest uh, challenge for less tech savvy parents. And so I guess I probably underestimated that effort, mm. but you know, like when you start hearing that you start being connected to some of the support requests, you know, so we did things like offer, um, you know, offer like basically, a uh, hold their hand through the process, you know, sort of like this concierge approach, which they could call us and we'll like just step in through everything. You know, it could take an hour. Right. And that, that was what we were offering them to get them on board. Um, because we strongly believe that when they are on board and things are working, like their life will be better. We knew it for sure. And, um, but getting them to that point was proved to be a little tricky for parents that felt intimidated. So, um, those are some adjustments we made, you know, some of it was just language, you know, that you use like words you use into connecting accounts versus like providers, like what's a provider, you know, like words that you sort of take for granted that you think that, oh, yeah, everybody deals with social media every day, which they don't, you know, a lot of parents mm-hmm. don't. So, so those are some changes that I could think of that parents had a strong impact on. Not to sound um, basic or super simple here, but the name Bark, is it what it implies? It's supposed to be like, you know, like a guard dog kind of thing or? Yeah, exactly. A real early on um, uh, kind of tagline was your your family's watchdog for internet safety. Mm. So yeah, it was it was a play on watchdog and um, kind of a family friendly uh, you know element that you know people add dogs and uh, pets to their lives and sort of like family's companion. So that's that yeah, it was all in that arena. So nice. is is there anything you know moving forward? Bark is looking to embark on or you know take on or is this kind of you guys are still you know in the beginning stages you're still trying to feel things out. No, I think, I mean, we've, we've fleshed out our consumer product and, um, you know, Bark.us, you can sign up a parent and a family, um, connect your kids and do your thing. You know, our, with a consumer product, one of the biggest challenges is just, is just getting out there and getting known, mm-hmm. you know, so real early on, nobody knew us. And so, you know, it was like, we need some PR. And so we got a bunch of good spots on, you know, news and, um, we were on the doctors and, uh, Dr. Oz, and um, we're going to be on Steve Harvey show next week, and we were on CBS Morning Show uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, Jenny McCarthy's serious show, and you know, so some of the PR has been picking up. It's interesting when you sort of start to generate some steam here, um, sort of snowball effect, you know, where all of a sudden people are hearing about you, and then Steve Harvey show reached out to us, right? And wow. that, that was like tables have turned, you know, and Dr. Oz doing a show, we're doing a thing on internet safety. We searched the internet and found you to be the most um, reliable solution in this space, and you're like. You know, wow. nine months ago, we were like, you know, who's Bark? And yeah, um, awesome. so I think it's a result of just being in a space that's new and like making some noise really early on. But also, you know, like I'm proud of what we're doing and, and I, there's not another solution similar. So, you know, I guess it's maybe not surprising, but we just needed to like get a little bit of that steam going to be the one to find when people are like, hmm, I need some info on like Internet safety and tools to monitor my kids' social media. You know, I'm proud now that we're starting to sort of like be that company that is easily found to do it. So I think it can only get better. Um, so that's like the consumer product. And then, you know, we have, um, the technology we've built, 
obviously takes child's social media data and and runs it through this thing and analyzes it. And that analyzer more or less could be used for a lot of things. And so we're starting to sort of make some plays into like a more B2B application, whether it's like, um, you know, social networks and uh, forums, right? A message board, for instance, imagine a message board that was geared towards families. You know, if, if all their content runs through our analysis tool, they might not want to post something that like is like really nasty that some person on the internet just you know drove by and posted something, yeah. some garbage that they want families to see. So we're starting to be sort of the, the place to go for um, content moderation as, okay. as it's sort of like in that same space. So that's more of a business side, which, um, which is interesting and like a, a different, a, a whole different game. But I think it's an exciting application because we have the tech to do it. It's just sort of a different application of it. Um, and I think it can help a lot of companies too. So fascinating stuff. I like the, uh, the explosion. Uh, yeah. that is, that is crazy though. You say, you know, like nine months ago, you know, we're, we're knocking down doors all of a sudden they're knocking on your door fast. The Steve Harvey show, like really, yeah. Yeah, um, awesome. That, that's wild. Hey, Brandon, have you seen a direct in- increase in sales with those? The, has there been a spike in, in you know, uh, I guess signups uh, after you've had some of that marketing that, you, that you've noticed? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's directly proportional. I mean, yeah. the, yeah. Um, the CBS morning show, we had two of our employees on the show um, on the 15th, so a couple weeks ago. So you know, that and then Jenny McCarthy was at 10 a.m. The morning show was at, you know, whatever it is, 8 a.m. And so it was basically like get up, make sure stuff doesn't fall over. And I mean, there was, I think at one point there was like maybe 10,000 people on the site. Wow. Um, That's awesome. And, and you know, and it's crazy because the day before it basically looks like nothing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not, yeah. not nothing. But like at this point we're getting hundreds of signups a day, but you know, the next day when you get thousands, like it's a very different scenario, you know? Yeah, sure. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, like a big press like that will sort of tail off after a little while mm-hmm. and hopefully another one pops up right and mm-hmm. next show. Right. And that pops it up. Um, you know, over time, I think the average of them all together sort of puts your little stamp all over the internet. Right. And so like the person that goes out to look at for bark or something similar, will be like, Oh, that's weird. And then they'll search for something. They pop up on Dr. Oz, right? Oh, bark. That's interesting. And then pops up on CBS, you know, website. And then we had some stuff on Forbes and uh, Huffington post. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I've seen this from enough angles. It must be trustworthy. Right. Yeah. So I'll go check it out. And that's, that's the goal is to be like in front of people, you know, when they're looking for stuff, um, similar terms, internet monitoring, safety, whatever, to be the people that um, they go to for it. So, so we're all dads here. Uh, you know, I always say this minus Gabe. Um, but I know you did mention earlier that, you know, some of the recommendations from the child uh, psychologist were super heavy. And I can only imagine, you know, when someone has, uh, you know, suicidal thoughts, what kind of conversations have to take place. So I, this is like, I, I, you know, I just, all I, all I picture is like my son's little face and uh, I don't know, I get like all choked up. But if, if, you know, parents aren't there yet. Like my child's only three and I'm like thinking like, holy crap, I'm going to have to eventually face this. Hopefully not to, you know, that level of severity, but what kind of conversations, um, should parents be having with their children, you know, regarding this and, and regarding, you know, privacy and then also kind of talking to the, the child saying, I'm your parent. Um, I'm doing this, you know, out of, you know, out of love, I want to protect you, but I also want you to have your own little life. But at the same time, this is just like me, you know, sitting in the backyard while you play. 
how, how do you how do you how, how do you open that? How do you start that? How do you without your kid being like, oh, you're so overbearing, you're just you know controlling. Well, I think what you said is exactly right in that you have that conversation that's open about it, and you you start from day one. So if that's their first device at age ten, you know, which which often is the pattern that we see. You know, I gave my child a iPad for Christmas. You know, um, our agreement was that in in addition to the iPad, we're going to install Bark. Um, and so if you, they want to play on the iPad, then they're going to have this on there. You know, if you start that real early on, I, I don't think it's as big brother because, you know, as a parent of, you know, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, I'm, I'm all over my kids. Like if I wasn't, they probably, I mean, they, they would be in the hospital like constantly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and that's your job, yeah. right, as, as parents is to keep them safe. And so I don't think the conversation is um, out of nowhere. I mean, if you decided one day that like your 17-year-old you were going to monitor and they hadn't been for, you know, eight years, I think that would come off weird. Yeah. Um, starting yeah. early and, and being open, I think, is, is the key to all of it, you know, in that like we we hear really good success stories from parents that are just just say that everything's on the table. You know, we talk about everything. Um, one interesting thing about Bark is that the result of these issues is something that's happened. The parents are notified after the fact. Like the the thing already takes place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not a prevention tool. Right. Like we're a prevention tool in a sense that um, you might learn a lesson and not do it again. Yeah. But uh, we don't stop it from happening from the start. So these are like real strong life lesson moments, right, for the parents and the child, which is why we stress the conversation and how to approach the conversation. Some parents are like, hey, I don't need any of your recommendations. Thanks for telling me I'll deal with it. We're like, cool. You know, like we we offered the notification there and they can they handle it however they choose, you know, and but if they need help, we're, we're there to help. And so we hope that that communication is open um, and they're having it with the child and saying like, look, the reason we're doing this is because we love you not because we want to be big brother on you, but there's some real risks on the internet. And some of the tips that we have, we have a um, little thing on there when you're connecting your accounts to say, here's some ways to start that conversation if you need it. Um, and there's some like, you know, you don't have to go too far to dig out stories of some really bad stuff that happens on the internet constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of networks that are really well known for it. And just seeing the stuff that comes across, I can tell you that it's, 10 times as worse as you, than you think it is hmm. every day for kids that, you know, are, are more or less just innocent, um, sitting there just receiving messages. They didn't reach out to these people. They didn't ask for this message to be sent or, or this picture or this video. I mean, imagine the nastiest stuff on the internet. Your child will get it or see it at some point. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed. Yeah. You know, and so the question then is like, uh, are you there when that happens? Are you there to help them understand what that is and why it's either right or wrong? Um, or do you let them sort of like navigate it on their own and, uh, hope to God that like they don't go down a path and get sucked into whatever they get sent. So I, but I think no matter what, I think the open communication is, is the key to all of it. So just kind of rewind a little bit. Can you explain real, really quick, a quick scenario of how, how, how Bark works? Yeah. So, um, let's say Instagram, for example, um, a lot of kids are on Instagram. Uh, the parent would sign up at bark.us. They use just email password. Um, you add your child. So you'd give us some basic information about them, their name and the birthday and, uh, the year they were born. And, um, then you would choose the accounts you want to connect to them. 
so, you know, let's say I'm connecting Instagram to my child. So and in a lot of cases, um, we suggest that the child is there and you're talking about this. This this spark is going to be in your life. It's going to help you. It's going to help me make sure you're safe. Let's connect up Instagram. And so you click Instagram. It takes you to Instagram and does one of those things where it says, you know, allow Bark to access your, you know, posts, comments, whatever the things on Instagram and your profile. Um, it's a one-time connect in most cases. And then you come back to the site. Now that Bark has access, we can go out and uh, constantly get the updates um, from their account that they would post or things that people send to them. Um, and so you would connect all the accounts you want. And like I said before, each one sort of works a little differently. Like Android, for instance, um, the child would install an app on their phone that would send them the text message content and then photos and videos and, and all the stuff we analyze. But in most cases, you know, you set it up and uh, it's all good and it just kind of goes on from there. And then we, you know, constantly go out and get all the data from those platforms and send it through our uh, our algorithms. And if something pops up as a potential issue, just shoot a text or email to the parent, um, depending on how they've chose to be notified. And, um, you know, just show it to them, basically. Um, and so some of it's like, you know, there's some context involved at times, you know, like a text message, you might have something that says, I hate you, right? But like, if I said, like, I hate you with... Um, like some crying emoji, you know, like that would be funny versus like the, the, you know, the bully on the playground that's like saying this to everyone. Yeah. So we provide some context around those conversations so you can see, you know, little history before it and after it to understand like, is this used in a malicious way or is this, you know, an innocent, I hate you, haha, you're stupid, you know, yeah. type of thing. then that's hard. It turns out that that like context is hard uh, for computers. Um, but yeah, the, the more data we get, the better we can get at detecting that um, and sort of sniffing out the difference between a sarcastic comment and something much more serious. So that's exciting because the more data, you know, Google is sort of like the prime example, search search data, right? Like that's the ultimate machine learning data set because people are searching on something, getting results and clicking or not clicking, right? And that click is like a confirmation that Google got the search result right. The non-click is like they click result one and five, two, three, and four were things that they can assume that that person didn't want or didn't agree that that was like relevant to their search. Mm. They get, you know, billions of hits a day confirming or denying that this search result was right for their search query. So machine learning, you know, making these algorithms that are accurate is all about just data, having good labeled data, you know, good positives, good negatives, and then building models around it to predict this kind of stuff. So it's exciting. So, so question. So, is it you are you have like people sending out the messages to the parents, or is that coming automatically like through the algorithms as well? Because I know receiving it is coming going through the algorithm, correct? Yeah. So, like, let's say um, your child posts something on Instagram that was inappropriate, right? Let's say it had some nudity in it for some reason, or sent a message somebody had nudity in it. Um, we would go out every once in a while. At some point, uh, we would go out and we'd see that new message. We'd bring it down. Uh, we'd send the picture, and if there's text content, we send it to the algorithms. The, it would pull apart the, the picture. It can detect nudity in pictures. It can pull off um, text in pictures and decide if that's like malicious or not. And it, it takes all that um, along with the history of the if, – if it's kind of conversational, like an Instagram post is not a great example, but imagine a text message, right? You send it to one person or many people. Um, it'll take uh, the history of the conversations with those people in the context – and understand, is this always bad or is, is it always fine and this is just like an isolated event? Um, and then score it and come back and basically say, 
this is an issue or this is not an issue. You know, it's a binary result of like, if it is, then we notify the parent. And in the parent's accounts, they have it set up to either like email them or end or text message them when there's an issue found. And then we would send them a text. They would click the link and it would pop in. And, you know, we'd basically show them the conversation, you know, the handful of messages that were relevant and say, this message was flagged for cyberbullying and profanity. We'd show them the profane, you know, words. And um, in most cases, it's pretty obvious. You know, when you read it and say cyberbullying, it's like, I hate you. I hope you die, you know, or something like very clearly um, an issue, you know, and then, you know, the parent can choose to like do what they want, you know, like um, talk to their kid, go through those recommended actions and read through them and have sort of some ammo to sit down and have that conversation if they need. Um, but otherwise, that's sort of the end of our our road there. You know, like we, we just provide them the information that we can um, that's relevant and hope that, um, you know, it meets their needs and, and they find it valuable. Good stuff. So, Good stuff. yeah. So in everything that I, I just I just find this so fascinating just because the background you gave us um, and we're going to we're you know, we're going to close this, you know, wrap this episode up just to kind of put bring it all together. You explained, uh, you know, the me- uh, mechanical engineering degree, you, you know, you have like certain backgrounds, the music, which to me was just like the creative side of you. You know, your experience working with other companies, you're a father and you seem like a very organized, orderly person. And then here is Bark, where it's to me, in my eyes, like it's all that put together and it's fascinating. Is there one thing through, you know, your, you know, the accumulation of, you know, your background, um, is there one thing that, that you would, you would do differently or is there something, are you just kind of on the, on the, on the side that, you know, everything happens for a reason and this is why I'm here where I am? There's nothing that stands out, honestly. Um, I, I think uh, where I am now is, is is definitely a reflection of all those pieces. Had I not played music, you know, I'd probably have a different mindset. Maybe good, maybe bad. I I don't know. I mean, it would definitely change it. Um, had I not gone to school for had I gone to school for computer science, um, maybe I would have hated it. You know, because I wasn't exposed to a language I loved, or I didn't find the same value in like solving problems. Um, with like real tangible results through the web, you know, like I, they, you, you take classes in designing operating systems like that. I might've, I might've been a year into it and been like, this is not for me. Yeah. I, th- I think I, you know, I, I tend to just kind of keep going down a path that seems exciting. Um, and, and trust that it, it I'll make a, a decision to one support myself, but now my family, um, that I can do that, uh, and hopefully enjoy it at the same time. The bark is, is particularly interesting to me now just because, you know, if you think of just like a big Venn diagram of like overlapping things, uh, this is these are all the things together, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a there's a different for me personally, there's a different uh, work ethic and mindset when you sink yourself into something that is very relevant and you have a passion for, you know, like five years ago, if I was making software to help kids out online um, would I have cared? I, I don't think so. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't want any children to get hurt in the world generally, but like I wouldn't have seen it through the same lens without having kids myself, mm. you know? And so the, the, the entrepreneurs that I see best at what they do have a, like a really strong passion for the thing that they're making. Like they, they believe a hundred percent that the world is going to be a better place because of the thing that they made. And that like you, you, that cannot be replaced, you know, yeah. with like just 
even an 80 hour week, like it doesn't matter if you don't care about um, like what you're making or or you think it should exist. People are going to see that. Like it's going to be very obvious and people are going to be like, why? I don't want to buy your thing. Like you don't even care about it. You're just making it to try and make some money or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I feel lucky that I'm in a position to feel that way and also be able to support myself and, and family uh, through it. But, you know, in a small company like that, like that, I feel like you can just sniff that out immediately. You know, mm-hmm. it's very clear if like your passion's there and you're in it, like fully in it. So it's cool because I get to have conversations on the phone with parents and um, we have sort of this feedback mechanism, you know, after they after they sign up and they're on for a while, we try to touch base with them and just see if, what we can do to help and like what, what their thoughts on Bark. And, you know, I just, I talked to all these different people with different mindsets and it's really cool. And like to have them say, thank you. You know, you're just like, man, this, that's it. You know, like that's those testimonials. That's, this is why we're doing it, you know, not to make myself feel better, but I truly believe the world would be better because Bark is, is part of our world. And then get that confirmation. It's, it's like, we're doing the right thing. Yeah. So, um, everything you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, the time freedom and, and even when you sold, uh, or you're still selling the book, but the first day of the release, um, you know, you see, you know, seeing the revenue coming in all, all the, the countless hours you talk about putting into, to your product, the passion that you have from it. And then going back to, you know, like your history and the buildup to where you are, to me, that just all points right into the direction of a successful entrepreneur, right? Um, you're just you're you're the epitome of what we're constantly talking about, and you're, and you're absolutely right. You can smell the you know the fakeness. I don't know for lack of a better word, uh, off someone or their product or service when they're clearly doing it um, just just for sales. Whereas you know we're talking to you, you admittedly said you might have done it five years ago. Not so sure if the passion would have been there until you had your own kids, but you're using all your talents, your creativeness, and your passion, and then obviously business sense to to make a product and effectively make one and one that you're proud of. Um, you have the T-shirt on. Um, you're 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 featured on shows. You're you're improving. You're getting the feedback. I mean, that is what we just talked about last week: the fulfillment, the satisfaction that life is giving you now because you're, you know, what you have generated. If, if, you know, the last tip you can give an entrepreneur or someone who's, you know, wants to, you know, create a business or has a startup idea, um, after I just said all that, that you are, to me, what I would say, that's a true, you know, full and, you know, entrepreneur. What one piece of advice, if you could, we're not saying, you know, we're flipping people, you know, you know, blowing people's minds away, but there's one tip that you can give someone with, with your experience uh, when it comes to, you know, entrepreneurship? Well, I think if you just start by scratching your own itch, you get, you know, you're going to have a good, a good base. Cause it's, it's highly likely that a problem that you have, many other people have, you, you just, you may not be around them, but you just got to find them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then the challenge is just finding them and then, you know, telling them why they need this in their life. And, and if, um, when you get that kind of like hair on fire response, like, you know, you've hit something good, yeah. you know, and this is like, Parents are one of those things, you know, as, as I'm sure as you know, as a parent, you'll do anything to keep your kids safe, mm. right? Like, in if that means like nine bucks a month, like that's, that's peanuts. I would pay 10 times this to keep my kids safe easily and not think twice about it. And, um, when you get that, when you're, when you're like, I want this thing to exist, it doesn't exist. So I'm going to make it. And then you get other people being, you know, you tell them about it and they say, yes, like that kind of response. Yeah. 
you know you're on to something. Yeah. You know, if you get people saying, yeah, that's cool. What do, what do you want to do for dinner? And you're like, hmm, that's, you know, you're not talking to the right people. So I think if you, you know, if you, if it's something that you really have a problem with, you just got to find those other people because, you know, we're not like, we're not little snowflakes, you know, like there's, there's other people just like us with the same problems, the same struggles, the same wants and needs start there, you know, like it's better than just making something up, you know, like early on when I got into sort of entrepreneurial kind of bug and said, I'll just make some stuff. Like I just started making things up and like, that's just stupid. Like it was, it was fine in a sense that like it had me explore some things and like make some stuff, which was cool. And I got gratification from, but from a practical standpoint, like I just wasted my time. You know, it was like, build it and they will come type thing. Like that's, that's, that's a waste of everybody's time. (laughs) Um, So, you know, make something, build something that you want to exist and find others that do uh, want the same. And I I think, I think you'll be heading in the right direction. So there you have it. People bark.us Brandon Hilkert, Brandon Hilkert.com. He is the CTO of uh, bark.us. Take a visit to both those websites Um, We like to wrap up our episodes with two quotes, and the first one is by Sigmund Freud, and it goes, I cannot think of any need in childhood as strong as the need for a father's protection. And the second one by Phil Libin, CEO of Evernote, there's lots of bad reasons to start a company, but there's only one good, legitimate reason, and I think you know what it is. It is to change the world. So, Brandon, um, aside from, you know, huge thanks for, you know, jumping on this uh, episode with us, where can, uh, do you have any Twitter handles or Instagram or where can people reach you and your company? Yeah, pretty easy to find. Uh, it's just BrandonHilkert.com and Brandon Hilkert on the things like Twitter and whatnot. And then Bark.us is the is the website. Um, check it out. There's a free 30-day trial um, to give it a shot if you're interested. And um and I can be found on on there or on my own website, brandonhilker.com, um, email and whatnot. So anybody have any questions, want to reach out, happy to chat. Yeah, I think that should be good enough. Awesome. A bark to match its bite. In this episode, we had special guest, entrepreneur, speaker, and developer, Brandon Hilkert. In this episode, we discuss startups, software development, and music. Brandon explains what kind of conversations parents should have with their children concerning cyberbullying, sexting, depression, and suicidal thoughts receive tips on entrepreneurship, and we wrap the episode up with quotes from Sigmund Freud and Phil Libin. Thanks again for joining us. Guys, don't forget to visit the website, jimmyleevelez.com. Follow the blog. If you have any inquiries or questions you would like for us to answer on a future episode, uh, just email us at info at jimmyleevelez.com. And on behalf of myself and the rest of the crew, we wish you massive success. And until next time, adios. The Rotated Views podcast was produced for self-development purposes. Thank you for the love and support. We truly do hope you enjoyed the views.